0: So here we are at number five, God's pleasure in election, the great doctrine of election and God's delight in it. That's what we're doing in this seminar. We're trying to see God's excellency more clearly by the things he delights in and how he does it, how he delights in them. So now we're at God's pleasure in choosing us. Deuteronomy, chapter 10. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your father's, We'll come back to that. He set his heart in love on your fathers, that is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and chose their offspring after them, you, above all the peoples. The reason for his saying, to God belong the heavens and the heaven of heavens is lest we think he's a tribal deity. I mean, All the tribes, Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Amalekites, They all had gods. Is Yahweh a tribal deity? Has he got his own people, Jewish, and then the the other gods have their peoples? And God, he he, he chose to have the Jews because the other gods had the others. And the point of beginning this statement with, to him belong the heaven of the heavens and the earth and all that is in it. He's not a tribal deity. He owns the earth. He owns the heavens. All the other gods are his. He do with them what he pleases. And with all of that, he set his heart in love on you, your fathers, and chose them, you above all the peoples, as you are this day. So God chose Israel. It's just amazing. God, God chose Israel. He, he came to Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees, Abraham a moon worshiper probably, and he saved him made promises to him, he believed God, and he was justified by faith. Had a personal relationship with God through faith. It says, he set his heart in love on your fathers. Literally, the Lord loved to love your fathers. Or he, that word right there. He seized and embraced and loved to love your fathers. There's no reason in Abraham. He didn't look around and say, I don't like those folks. I don't like those folks. I don't like those folks. I really like the way Abraham lives. So I'll choose Abraham. It wasn't like that at all. It was free. And if you read the story of the Old Testament, isn't your mind boggled that God sticks with these people? if if we would ever be encouraged that he could be patient with us, it would be reading the story of Israel. Good night. How quickly they murmur after he's done them another favor. And they murmur again. And he does them another favor. And they murmur again. He does them another favor and, and he just keeps going and going and going. He was acting in the overflow of his joy. He was not constrained by anything outside himself to choose this people. He acted freely. His election was unconditional. Look at these words in Deuteronomy 7. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. That's the election of Israel. So we're starting with Israel in our doctrine of election. We're not starting with us, we're starting with the church. We're starting with Israel. The Lord your God chose you to be a people of his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you. Now, I, don't, I think the reason he said this isn't because, well, maybe there were other virtues. I think this was just one way of saying it wasn't you. It wasn't because of you that he chose you you who were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. He loves you because he loves you. He chose you because he loves you. His love was free, it was unconditional. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, which was also free. He chose Abraham freely. Abraham didn't earn his being chosen that the Lord's brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh. God says, stays free in choosing who are his. He's not locked in to the ethnicity of Jewishness once he chooses Israel. Look at this. He stays free. Matthew 3. Do not presume to say to yourselves, this is John the Baptist talking. We have Abraham as our father. So <laughs> evidently he could sense that election of corporate Israel was starting to feel like a right so that if he comes pronouncing judgment, they say, "We have Abraham as our father, meaning we escape. We're the chosen ones. To which John says, "Don't say we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to raise up from stones children for Abraham." They were. They had the mindset, evidently, since we're born into the elect, chosen people, Israel. God must be faithful to his covenant so we're safe no matter what we do or believe. Because if he throws us away, he's got no people. And his covenant won't come true, and he will be unfaithful to his name, and he can't be unfaithful to his name, and therefore we're safe. And John says, excuse me, you're forgetting something. You're right. God is faithful. He keeps his covenant. He honors his name. And if he needs to, he'll do it with rocks. And throw you away. And guess what? We're the rocks. And the sons of the kingdom have been hardened. But that's another seminar. Matthew 8. People will come from east and west and sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. It's scary. I stand at my window and I pray for the Jewish people. Oh, how we should pray for the Jewish people. If you have Jewish friends, love them. Because... They are temporarily under the judicial hardening of God, according to Romans 11. But they will not always be. When the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then all Israel will be saved. The hardening and the blindness will be lifted, and who knows when that may prove to be And in the meantime, Paul says, I magnify my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles in order to make my kinsmen jealous. Now, how might you do that? By enjoying the inheritance of Abraham. You inherit everything the Jews were promised. You are a Jew. If you lived in the fullness of being the new and true Israel, which you are, perhaps some of your Jewish friends, if you understood... Abraham is your father. All the promises made to Abraham are yours as a Gentile, a rock. They might watch and say, that's mine. Those are my promises. And you say, yes, they are. Come on in. Come on in. Be grafted into the tree. I'm only saved because of your father. I've been grafted into the tree of the Abrahamic Promise. It's only because I became a Jew by faith in the Messiah that I have any hope. And I would like you not to stand on the outside like the older brother and just come on into the party. We can have a good time here. It's meant to be Jew and Gentile together. Oh, how I, I just uh, I hope as a church we have more fruitful ministry among Jewish people. Don't ever, ever participate in anti-Semitic talk or anti-Semitic act. Evangelicals have been and ought to be the best friend of the Jewish people. I don't necessarily mean that determines our political stance in the Middle East. That's complicated, because Palestinians are also Christians. That's another seminar also. (laughs) Getting sidetracked here. So the point is, God remains free in his electing work so that nobody can, for ethnic reasons or any external reasons, say, I'm safe because I'm in the elect people and it doesn't matter what I do or what I believe, I'm secure. And at any point, God can raise up a stone to take your place. Romans 9 shows the freedom of God in electing eternally within the elect covenant people. Watch this. It is not as though the word of God has failed when the Jews have rejected Jesus. He had just said in verse 3 of chapter 9, I wish that I could be accursed and cut off from Christ for my kinsmen, which means they're accursed and cut off from Christ. So now you have the elect people, hell bound. It's just terrifying to Paul, it's just how can this be? He had to wrestle with this. Jewish people, Pharisees are rejecting the Messiah. In fact, something I'll, I'll just allude to in the sermon tonight. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up so that everyone who believes on him would have eternal life. I'll ask the question just, I'd love to preach a whole sermon on it, but let's pass over it quickly. Who lifted up the son of man? Moses lifted up the serpent. As Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the son of man, passive voice, be lifted up. Who, Who was the Moses? So how do you answer a question like that? You're not told in the context. Here's what you do. If you have a computer, you click on uh, the passive word, lift up, be lifted up. I can't remember the word. You click on it and you find all the uses in John. There aren't many. And all of them refer to the lifting up of the Son of Man. And in only one place are we told who did it. The Pharisees did it. They're the Moses. With, when Paul, Paul was one of those. Opposing the Messiah. The most religious, the most Bible-oriented members of the covenant community rejecting the Messiah. Unthinkable. It's just, what are you going to do with this? The word of God has fallen. The promise made to the patriarchs is over. The people of Israel, he's come and they've rejected him, almost lock, stock, and barrel. They, he's, this was a mammoth problem. And, and this is Paul's way of dealing with it right here in Romans 9. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong. Election takes a people, the Jews, and then inside that people, there's an elect, among the elect. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Not all descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all the children of Abraham because not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Some are, some are Some are children of Abraham who are children of Abraham. Some of the children of Abraham are not children of Abraham, meaning not elect, not saved, not born again, not eternally secure. But through Isaac, implicit, not Ishmael, your offspring will be named. What he's getting at is that there's a narrowing here. There's a narrowing going on within every generation. There is the ethnic corporate entity of the elect people, the covenant people. And then within that, there is the elect who are truly gods. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, natural birth, who are the children of God, But the children of promise are counted as offspring, which opens the possibility that Gentiles might be in there. He's not talking about that yet. But he he did back in chapter 2. It's not those who have the circumcision of the flesh who have the true circumcision. You are the true circumcision, and he's talking to Gentiles. So here we are. And by virtue of having the faith of Abraham, we are the children of Abraham. And so implicit there in that counting is that Gentiles can be included here in this offspring of Abraham. For this is what the promise said about this time next year. Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah, she is um, Isaac's wife, conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac though they were not yet born, and had done nothing good or bad, in order that the purpose of God, according to election, God's purpose of election, might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I loved Esau so I hated. Now there is the clearest statement, I think, in the Bible, about unconditional election. Though Jacob and Esau had not yet been born, had not done anything good or bad, God chose the one over the other. The older shall serve the younger. Why did he do it that way? Why did he choose before they had done anything to earn it or to become worthy of it? so that it would not be because of works, but, and it doesn't say but because of faith. That's usually the opposite of works, works and faith, not works but faith, but because of him. Just tracing it straight back to God, not of works, but of him who calls. Sovereign call of God, she was told, the elder shall serve the younger. Now, just a little autobiography here. When I was teaching at Bethel, and we'd get to the sovereignty of God, and we'd get there in every class, even when I didn't want to, it would always come up. Every single class I taught, students would see implications for the sovereignty of God in election, and they would push on me. And when all my arguments were done, I would end here, in Romans 9. Not just here, but the rest of the chapter. And and some of these folks who had given a lot of thought to these and were getting other messages in other classes besides the one I had um, would say, that's just corporate election. That has nothing to do with eternal election. That's just dealing with peoples. It doesn't have anything to do with individuals. So it's not eternal and it's not individual. It's corporate and it's temporary and historical, and so you can't use Romans 9 to defend any of that talk about individual, unconditional election. So um, I spent an entire sabbatical. I asked asked them, look, I've got to work this through. I, I, I have to settle from my mind the meaning of Romans 9. Romans 9 is just massive in its implications, depending on how you go. So they gave me a sabbatical after my sixth year at Bethel, and I took from January through August and did nothing but study Romans 9, 1 to 23, and wrote a book about it called The Justification of God, and settled it in my mind. This does indeed relate to the eternal and individual destinies of people. And I'll just give you one argument why this reference here to Jacob and Esau, even though Jacob and Esau are heads of peoples. Jacob. Jews, Esau, the Edomites, why, and that's a quote from Malachi, why the point is about individuals for this reason. In chapter 9, verse 3, the problem that is setting up the whole chapter is that Paul is experiencing grief every day about his kinsmen according to the flesh And I could wish that I were accursed and cut off from Christ on their behalf because they have the promises and the kingdom and the oracles. So the problem is my Jewish kinsmen are accursed and cut off from Christ. So he's setting up the problem as a problem for individuals within corporate Israel elect corporate people Israel, some are lost. I'm a Jew and I'm not lost. The twelve apostles were all Jews and they're not lost. Jesus was a Jew and he's not lost. Not all Israel is lost, but most of them are lost because they're rejecting the Messiah. The issue of Romans 9 set up in verse 3 is some, not all, of the people are lost. How do you account for that? that's what the point of the chapter is dealing with and so when when these when this narrowing down of the elect people is being described here from Jacob to uh, uh, Isaac not Ishmael and from Isaac to J- did I say Jacob Abraham to Isaac not Ishmael and from Isaac to Jacob not. Esau, when when you see that narrowing down, the point is that explains the bigger picture of why some Jews believe and some Jews don't, which is why the the rest of the chapter talks about it is not of him who runs or of him who wills, but of God who has mercy. He hardens whom he wills, and he has mercy on whom he wills. Who are you, a man, to answer back to God and say, why then does he still find Paul? Paul's dealing exactly with our issue of individual, eternal, unconditional election here. But that took uh, nine months and 250 pages, if you want to look at it. What was God's purpose in free, unconditional election? The praise of His glorious grace, which you see here in Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. So he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So that's before we had done anything good or evil that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Having chosen us, he now predestined us through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, not anything in us, but his own divine wisdom. And here's why. To the praise of his glorious grace. That's one of the most important phrases in the Bible, right there. Some of you guys are studying Ephesians. and Verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. I remember seeing that for the first time about 1977 and being blown away by the, the, the one sentence that begins the book of Ephesians. About 14 verses long. And the main point of that sentence is, verse 6... Repeated in verse 12, repeated in verse 14. We are chosen and predestined to the praise of His glorious grace. You will not praise Him as you ought until you feel the wonder that He chose you for absolutely nothing in you. Nothing. It's very hard to get your mind around, because we're wired to merit things. To get something freely, it's incomprehensible. To know that we're loved with a, a love that begins in eternity, and He chose to set His favor upon us. The wild beast will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. My chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. And it's a praise, in particular, for his grace. Grace is the apex of his glory in in election. What election does is make grace shine most gloriously and make us humble. So look at how Paul spells that out. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose, this is election, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. As long as there is some conditionality to your election, that God waits to watch you do something, whether it's believe or love, then he chooses you. Because of what you did, having foreseen it, there will be an undermining of this purpose. Now, Armenians, if they heard me say this right now, they would totally disagree with that. They would say, we, we don't boast that we grabbed on to the life's jacket that was thrown to us. We don't. No, no, no person would, would boast that if they're drowning and they admit they're drowning and they're humbly brokenhearted, they're crying for help and God throws them a life preserver and says, I'm going to watch to see who grabs it and then I'll save that person and we grab it. We don't boast in our grabbing it. And I say, I'm deeply thankful that you don't boast in your grabbing it. I'm very thankful. But this text says, they grabbed it because God helped them grab it. God enabled them to grab it, and God put their arm around it because even though they may be gasping with gratitude on the uh, Coast Guard boat, a year later, as they thought about all the people who were going down and all of them thrown life preservers, and many of them didn't grab. Why didn't they? And I did. And either you're going to chalk it up to you or God. I was strong enough. I was smart enough. I was. I did and they didn't. In heaven, when God asks you why you're there someday, Say because Christ died for me. But how did you relate to that? I believed in him. I I put my trust in him. I I despaired of myself and I I trusted in your son and nothing in me. You did. Why did you do that and your your brother didn't? Now right at that point, I just want you to give the right answer. You're going to say, Grace, You're not going to say, because my brother was stupid or because my brother wasn't as smart as I was or because uh, I was more spiritually sensitive or none of those answers are going to give glory to God. You're going to say, thank you. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. And even your faith was the gift of God. Because of Him you are in Christ Jesus. That'd be a good way to put the answer. I'm in Christ today because you have put me in, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So you have a negative, this is negative, so that no human being might boast, and this is positive, so that we boast only in the Lord. That's the goal of election. He chose, he chose, he chose, unconditionally contrary to human expectation in order to silence our boasting in ourselves and awaken our boasting in him. That's why he did it, which means i would just step back and give the big answer here in view of the way we're asking the question. What does God delight in when he delights in electing unconditionally? Answer, he delights in being boasted in. He does mean for us to enjoy his grace fully, give all the glory to his grace fully. Fully not take part of the credit for ourselves. So, his delight in unconditional election is a delight consistent with everything else we've seen, namely God's delight in being God. The implications of that are five, I think I have written down here. It brings all praise to his grace and humbles man. It bestows on all who will have it the unspeakable blessing of God's covenant love, covenant love. He loved us and gave himself for us like a husband obtaining a a wife. You, You need to know yourself loved with a kind of love that is not ultimately dependent on you, but on God. God chose you freely to be his part of his bride. And he's making her beautiful, according to Ephesians 5. It assures us of success in evangelism and success of the gospel in missions. A lot of people say if God elects unconditionally, then there's no point in evangelism. Well, that's ridiculous like saying, since God, if God ordains that this nail be in the board, there's no reason to hit it with a hammer. Here is the text that shows how successful evangelism will be because of election. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Now, notice what Jesus is saying. I have other sheep, that means unbelievers, who are not yet saved, out there somewhere. I have other sheep that are not of this, they're they're the elect, not of this fold. I must bring them, they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock. I must bring them, they will listen to my voice. So he sends Paul to Corinth. Paul starts to have fear. Jesus comes to him in a dream in Acts 18, 9. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. This speaking here is this speaking. Jesus today does not do evangelism from the clouds. Jesus speaks today. He saves sinners today, He awakens the dead today, and He does it when we, in His name, in the power of His Spirit, speak His word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ coming through your mouth, not megaphone from heaven. Nobody gets saved with megaphones from heaven. How shall they believe in Him whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear? Well, a preacher, and how shall they preach unless they be sent a beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news? Be missionaries here and around the world because this is what's going to happen. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent for I am with you. No one will attack you for I have many people in this city. I have many in this city who are my people. That's these sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Some of them are in Corinth. I have many people in this city. They're not yet saved. They're mine. They're elect. You go speak, and I will awaken them. I will use your voice as a means. So election, I was listening to John Alexander at Urbana 66 talk about predestination and missions. And he said, when I first went to Pakistan, I'm not sure it was Pakistan, wherever he went, when I first went into missions, I thought if I believed in predestination, I wouldn't become a missionary. God's going to get them saved any way he wants if they're already predestined to eternal life. And then after 20 years, he said, now I say, having been there, if I didn't believe in predestination, I'd never be a missionary. Because I'm powerless. I'm absolutely powerless to save hardened unbelievers. If I didn't believe that God sovereignly conquers the human heart, and He always does it according to His plan and purpose, namely election, then I wouldn't be a missionary. That's what Hundreds and hundreds of great, historic, fruitful, sacrificial missionaries have believed. William Carey, Adoniram Judson, John Patton, Alexander Duff. The line is many. They totally believed that God saves sinners sovereignly according to His electing grace, and He uses human beings, and therefore there's hope that I might be used to save sinners who need to be raised from the dead. Fourth implication, it brings security to the heart of the believer because of the chain of certainty connecting election, predestination, calling, justification, glorification— Oh, Saint, listen to this. We know that for those who love God, who are called according to His, um, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, what I mean by security, it brings security to believe in our election, our unconditional election, is that this election unleashes a chain of certainty that moves from predestination to calling to justification and glorification. And none of those links in the chain can be broken because it says, those whom he predestined, he called. None of the predestined are not called. Those whom he called, he justified. None of the called are not justified, which means this call is effectual. It awakens the faith that justifies, absolutely and securely. It is irresistible. It overcomes all human resistance. None of the called fail to be justified. And it preserves because none of the justified fail to be glorified. Those who are justified are glorified. That is glorious. You you want security in your life? you want rock-solid assurance in your life, then preach to your soul, the predestined are called. The called are called are justified, the justified are glorified. Nobody drops out. God sees to it. So the question is, are you justified? And you hear the Testament, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We hold that a man is not justified by works, but by faith that everything boils down, will you believe? Will you trust Him? Comments there on the foreknowledge of God. I'm going to jump over those and go to just deal briefly with God's pleasure in bruising His Son, and we'll stop with this one. God's pleasure in bruising His Son. This is the heart of the gospel. This is where you start with an unbeliever. This is where you end the seminar. It's not a bad place to end. But it's a hard thing to think of the Father delighting in the crucifixion of Jesus. Is that right? Should we think that way? Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, he has put him to grief. It was the will of the Lord, literally, this word haphets, it pleased, that word, it pleased, usually rejoice or delight. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, to crush him. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Really. Let's think of it. He gives himself up on the cross, and as the Father stoops down to watch, believe me, according to Romans 8.32, this was not easy for God, the Father, because it says... He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That little phrase, did not spare, means he would have gladly spared. But he didn't. And when he didn't, and the son obediently went to the cross, and God stooped down and smelled it, it was fragrant in his nose. It was beautiful. Visually horrible, spiritually, morally magnificent. You could make a long list of the things about the death of Jesus that the Father loved. His meekness, his love, his sacrifice, his patience, his yieldedness to the Father. I mean, the list would be quite long. You don't have to say God is sadistic to make sense out of this. In the complexity of the mind of God the Father, it is possible to weep and rejoice at the same time, to grieve over the pain and the exquisite suffering of his son's body and soul and yet to say, what a son! What a son! What an obedience. What a faithfulness. What a patience. My boy. Yeah, it's, you have to say both. God's wrath is being poured out on his son. And as he beholds the son's patient endurance of his own wrath, he loves what he sees. He never stopped loving His Son. He never stopped delighting in His Son. How can that be? What's behind it? God has chosen sinners for His own love possession, but sin is dishonoring to God, therefore it looks like God is discounting His glory. Which contradicts his highest value and would be unrighteous. Therefore, if sinners are to be elect and saved, God's glory must be upheld and his righteousness must be vindicated. So finally we'll stop with this. Just give you work our way through this and we'll be we'll be done. This is the most important paragraph in the Bible, perhaps. Because it explains Why God put Christ, His Son, His beloved Son, in whom He delights infinitely, why He put Him to shame, why He put Him to such horrible horrible rejection and and pain. What's going on there? All have sinned, It's us, and fall short of the glory of God. So the glory of God is the issue in our sin. What do we do? We behold the glory of God in the world. We behold it in the Word. And we we choose food and we choose television. We choose money and we choose power and we choose fame and we choose all kinds of things besides God. And we dishonor Him. We make Him look like He's not worth the time of day. But we are justified by His grace as a gift, couldn't be any other way, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now what did God do in putting him forward to redeem, to buy us back from our horrible bondage and slavery and being under his wrath? Whom God put forward, so God did this, God put him forward as a propitiation, that means a means of appeasing and removing God's wrath, By his own blood, so in his death, to be received by faith. And then he starts this. This was to show God's righteousness. Oh. So what's at stake in God putting Christ forward and being pleased to bruise him in saving sinners is that if he didn't do it this way, it would look like his righteousness is called into question. Now you remember a couple of sessions ago I said defining the righteousness as God's relentless upholding of his glory was going to be important. This is where it's important. God is righteous only to the degree that he continues to vindicate and uphold and display his glory. Sin in you and me has trampled the glory of God, made it look like it's not worth the time of day. That's what we do all day long. We belittle the glory of God because we're not ravished by it, we're ravished by other things. God saves us, justifies us, declares us to be absolutely perfect and righteous in spite of that. So it looks like he's saying, my my glory doesn't matter very much. I'm going to save people who trample it all day long. In order not to say that, in order to be righteous, He puts Jesus in our place and displays by his wrath on Jesus how much he hates God-belittling sin. That's what this says. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just, righteous, and the one who justifies, the one who simply has faith in Jesus. Jesus. He passed over sins. He's he's passing over your sins right now. He's treating you 10,000 times better at this very moment than you deserve. And therefore, it looks as though he doesn't consider your sin very important. He doesn't consider the glory that you have belittled very valuable. And the solution to that problem of justice and righteousness is Christ crucified. When Christ came into the world he came into the world to magnify the glory of the Father and he took on himself all the indignation of God against our god-belittling sin and said it matters this much this much to God and God in delighting in crushing his son is ultimately delighting in the vindication of the worth of his glory which is where we began and where we should end. You can work through the rest of the book and the rest of the issues yourself. What we've tried to see is this. The excellency of a soul, God's soul in this case, is determined by, shown by, the object of its love, the object of its delight, passion, satisfaction. And we've worked our way through God's delight in His Son and God's delight in His display of His glory, God's delight in doing all that He does in history, God's delight in creation, God's delight in election, and now God's delight in the crucifixion of His Son. And in every case, what we've seen, and we would if we kept on going, is that ultimately... What God is delighting in, in all those things, is the way they display the glory of God. So God creates the world to move out from the intra-Trinitarian enjoyment of himself and create beings who, if they will have it, may enter into the joy of their master and participate in glorifying Him by enjoying Him forever. So yeah, He is the most excellent of all beings, and we've seen it in what He delights in, namely Himself, in everything He does and everything He has made, we pray. Father, though we have only skimmed the surface of your word, we are thankful. Oh, how thankful we are that you have given us yourself through Christ. You didn't come and just say, I'm admirable, look at me. If you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. You came and died for us. You pointed our attention towards the cross. You sent the Holy Spirit to open our eyes that we might see your infinite worth. We exist to enjoy you, to glorify you. And we want so much now to do this. So come, open our eyes to see your Supreme Excellency. And may we join you in enjoying your glory. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.